You are listening to episode 63 of Pasachipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about my podcast's publications and to subscribe to my newsletter, visit my website, pasachipotle.com, or you can simply click the link on this episode's notes. is here, my favorite season of all. And more importantly, we can now see the end of this year on the horizon. Now, thank you for bearing with me and the different pace at which I am releasing episodes. And while the dark circles under my eyes seem a bit dramatic, <laughs> I am really enjoying and trying to make the most of my studies. And of course, compromises have to be made. Now, having said that, I know that not everyone that listens to the show follows me over Instagram and vice versa. But I recently shared some reflections about my personal drives and what inspires my work. So because I think it is a fairly important message, here it goes again. It all started around six years ago, when I changed careers and reoriented my skills and experience to explore Mexico's cultural practices through the lens of food. But why? Well, I came to realize that the rising global interest for Mexican foods grew, namely for foods like tacos, tamales and quote-unquote wok. But I noticed a problem, that there was a troubling absence of critical Mexican voices talking to these audience. And at a personal level, I felt very uncomfortable with the way that my culture and culinary traditions were framed and pictured. And there I had it. My professional manifesto took shape, which is to reclaim the representation and narratives of Mexican food, reframe the history and mixed heritage, and create meaningful and accessible ways to share it with the world. And that is exactly what I've been doing ever since through, well, this very podcast, my ebooks, food tour, and a lot of public speaking. But the value of my work doesn't really lie in the products I make, but in the way that you make them your own, in how you enjoy them and how they help you will have a different understanding and attitude about Mexican food and culture. For those who aren't Mexican, well, hopefully it will bring depth and context. And for anyone of Mexican heritage, well, this is your story. And it is yours to learn it, say it, love it, claim it, and share it. Now, I know it is difficult to have anything good to say about this fire in a bin that is 2020. But you know, 
It has also brought some unexpected and incredibly rewarding opportunities. And I really want to publicly express my gratitude to Peter Gard, who is history librarian at Brentwood Library from New York, for inviting me to offer a virtual lecture about the history of Mexican markets for his community. Dr. Vanessa Miseres from the Department of Romance Languages and Literature at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana, for having me for a lecture about Mexican chiles. Professor Daniela Gutierrez Flores from the University of Chicago that invited me to talk to her students about the pathways to deliver impact and socializing academic research through digital platforms this upcoming November. And last to Maria Gonzalez, who is a board member of Puente Latino Association, which was recently voted California's non-profit of the year. And I am preparing a talk about the Day of the Dead traditions, which will be available here on the podcast and on YouTube in a few weeks. Well, for today's episode... I decided to curate three stories from the podcast's archives that explore the ways in which food has served as a conduit for migrant diasporas to negotiate cultural exchange in Mexico. But not only their culinary traditions and techniques made their way into our gastronomy, as it is equally fascinating the way in which we adopted key aspects of their cultures and made them part of our own hybrid identity. So you will hear about English miners that came in the early 1800s, the large Arab diaspora that came between the late 1800s and the 1930s, and last, the thousands of Chinese men and women who came to Mexico when things turned sour after their contracts to build railways in the US ended. This episode comes with a delicious recipe and a really good selection of books. So you only need to open this episode's notes on your podcast app and click on the links that I have left for you. Right then, get your foodie passports ready because we are about to take off. I hope you enjoy this episode. Prior to the First World War, the world was a much different place. And in the 1800s, a brave new future was announced with the clackety-clang of the Industrial Revolution. Britain was at the epicenter of this transformation. And large cities became magnets for millions of people who flocked from rural areas to become the workforce for thousands of factories that transformed the raw materials and resources extracted from across the empire to produce all sorts of modern wonders. But with the rapid modernization also came a fierce competition and even in the cradle of this transformation, certain activities struggled to cope with it. Mining to extract metals was at the heart of the industrial activity and there were many hotspots across Britain, most of them in the north and quite a few in the south, particularly in Cornwall. At the height of the mining activity, this sector employed thousands of men and women, but with the ongoing global competition, fall in prices and other circumstances, many mines closed down. However, skilled miners 
were still on high demand around the world, and this saw the relocation of thousands of miners that went to Australia, America, and even Mexico. Of the many migrant communities that traveled from far away lands to relocate here, it comes a bit as a surprise that a small group of Englishmen left the sunny coast of Cornwall to work at the heart of the cold and misty mountains of the state of Hidalgo. Their story is a poignant reminder that there's no such thing as a permanent state of idyllic prosperity, and that migrations from the north to the south had the same motivations as those from south to north, working hard to have a better life and chances for themselves and their families. As with any human story, there are lights and shadows to this one, but the cultural footprint of these Cornish miners will be imprinted in Mexico's own cultural DNA. Curious now? Well, let's see what this is all about. In Mexico, the Industrial Revolution had quite a slow development, so much so that it had to be carried by mules. On a very hot day in 1825, the tropical port of Veracruz in the Gulf of Mexico saw the arrival of 60 Cornish miners. The whole entourage included miners and some of their wives and families, along with, of course, businessmen, who shipped 1,500 tons of machinery that had to be painstakingly moved by a long convoy of 53 wagons, 550 mules and 120 men who slowly crossed half the country and made their way into the mountains of Real del Monte in the state of Hidalgo, covering 372.5 kilometers. Not too long before, the Mexican War of Independence that lasted between 1810 and ended in 1821 had ground into a halt most of the early industrial activity in Mexico. But vast deposits of heavy minerals, silver and gold awaited in the guts of the mountains. With no capital or skilled workforce, this was a serious problem, which is why the arrival of modern machinery and world-renowned miners was a breath of hope to get the old and rusty mining industry ready to be reignited. Following their husbands, many women traveled soon after from Cornwall to settle in the ironically cold and damp city of Real del Monte. And like any good homemaker from the time, they knew that the best way to a man's heart is the stomach. So they wasted no time in reproducing their own traditional recipes. Because wherever we are in the world, no matter how far, no matter how lonely and homesick we might feel, the food from our homeland will always bring a glowing smile to our faces. Cornwall is famous for many things, namely for the warmth of its almost Mediterranean weather, the stunning beauty of its coastline and a very special food. You see, Cornish women knew a secret about making the best packed lunch for their men. After all, mining in southern England dated back to the Iron Age, and you are sure to believe they came up with a solution to feed hungry miners that worked incessantly in the dark, cold, gloomy and dangerous tunnels. And if you think of it, it certainly was no place for iced cakes or dainty sandwiches. 
The solution was as simple as it was practical and filling. A hearty combination of beef, parsnips, potatoes, and other root vegetables encased in a tough crust, made with wheat flour, suet, that is lard, water, and salt. This baked parcel required no cutlery, reheating, or even clean hands. After all, death by lead and arsenic poisoning was all too common among miners. So they deliberately made this thick and tough crust inedible and only served the purpose to protect its rewarding contents. Pasties were indeed a perfect miner's lunch, and the earliest records that mention something similar to pasties date back to the 1300s. And according to the Cornish tradition, miners' wives used to bake their husbands' initials on the crust so that even in the darkness, men could recognize their own pasties, break open the crust, eat the filling, and toss away the rest. Over time, of course, home cooks developed overground recipes to make flaky, flavorful, and delicious crusts, to prepare pasties for the family, and also to sell as pick-me-up meals. And here comes the culinary innovation. Because not even pasties could escape good Mexican seasoning and chiles, the Cornish diaspora was so warmly welcomed in Real del Monte that the otherwise conservative Catholic authorities allowed the construction of a local Methodist church and an Anglican graveyard, where tombstones are oriented pointing towards Cornwall. Local historians say that not soon after the Methodist church was built, the sound of Cornish carols flooded the Mexican skies during the cold and damp winters in Real del Monte. Now, this love affair and sudden wealth that the revived mining industry brought didn't last too long, as the run-up to the Mexican Revolution that started in 1910 once more put at risk the modernist ideals of the young nation. In spite of it all, many miners actually settled permanently, and some even married locally. And with this, the remaining cultural bridges were soon crossed to give way to the mixed heritage and more English than not little town of Real del Monte. So what happened to their food? Well, another important addition to our culinary repertoire are English stews. They also got a twist by making them, well, richer and with the addition of dried chiles, thick and velvety broths, were now called estofados. As for pasties, Mexicans renamed them as pastes and quickly embraced them and made them their own by adding herbs and substituted large pieces of beef for mince and, of course, added delicious chiles. Such was the success of the pasties that they became the staple pick-me-up meal for everyone in the streets of Hidalgo. The number of fillings increased and many variations appeared, such as elote con champiñones, that is corn kernels with mushrooms and cheese, mole and chicken, chipotle and jalapeño also found their way in them, as well as beans, of course. And even sweet alternatives were invented, like custard and pineapple, blackberry jam and cream cheese, dulce de leche or cajeta, rice pudding, and apple cinnamon made their debut 
a local menus. A popular saying from Real del Monte goes like this. We can die happy any day after eating pastis because we know that it's a true taste of heaven. It sounds more poetic in Spanish, but you get the idea. Now, definitely, not everything was mining day in and day out. Cornish miners also knew how to have a proper break. And what better fun than having a cheeky football game above ground? Now, part of their work consisted on training locals in the art of mining. So, grueling long days had to be, well, balanced with some much-needed recreation. So, they soon shared with Mexicans the rules and best tricks to play football. And Mexicans fell hopelessly in love with this exotic sport. So much so that the word spread out and soon after, the capital of Hidalgo became the host of the first ever official team, the Pachuca Athletic Club in 1900. From that day on, football became the default national pastime and the Cornish Mexican mining community and the Cornish Mexican mining community gloriously entered FIFA's Hall of Fame for introducing the English national sport to Mexico. A capacity crowd are at Wembley to see England in the white shirts gain their biggest win ever over Scotland. At first, Scotland attack, but right back Meadows heads away. In 2008, a revival of the Cornish heritage in Hidalgo inspired the first ever international paste festival in Real del Monte. And to celebrate their heritage, a Twin Cities agreement between Cambourne, Cornwall and Pachuca was signed. With the help of the Cornish Mexican Cultural Society, in 2014, the world's first and probably only Paste Museum opened its doors and the Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall were the guests of honour at both the festival and the museum's inauguration, where they baked pastes as part of the celebrations. Once again, this story proves that food will always bring people together, whether we share the same heritage or not but mostly because it fuels our imagination and nourishes our inspiration. And this is how England and Mexico became forever united by a shared story of love, perseverance, pastors and a fervent passion for football. Otherwise traditional, simplified history of Mexico says that this land was conquered by Spaniards and hence the heritage of the mestizo population of the colonial period was half indigenous and half Spanish. But actually, it wasn't as simple as that. As you might recall in previous episodes of the show, I have often mentioned the fact that in the very same year of the discovery of the Americas, in 1492, the so-called Catholic kings raised an army to launch the reconquest of their land and dissolved the Arab caliphates and expelled the Arab population that had colonized and occupied most of the south of Spain for 700 years. 
So we actually need to acknowledge that Mexico was in fact colonized by Spaniards and the descendants of the Al-Andalus. And among the immigrants that came afterwards to settle here, also we find descendants of the Sephardi minority, that is, of Jewish heritage. So we are no strangers to the many influences of the Arab world that are at the core of Spain's own culture. After all, we can find more than 4,000 words of Arab origins that are part of the Spanish language. So words like La Mancha, Guadalajara, Almohada, Albacete, Alaja, Zanahoria, and 3,993 other words can illustrate this. The very flamenco music will be much less impressive without Arab string instruments, the melodic structure and chord progression of the style of singing. Do you want more? Okay, what about the quote-unquote traditional Mediterranean Spanish architecture, which is nothing but the result of the Al-Andalus style of Arabic influence? Ceramics and Talavera tiles, decorative motifs and urban engineering also are a product of these Muslim presence. And of course, the best for last, the mother of all culinary fusions that brought together the whole pantry of the Silk Roots into Europe via Spain, and that evolved into Mexico's love affair with rich, sweet and savory combinations that see ingredients like raisins, dried fruits, nuts and syrups dotted all over our cuisine. And all of that is nothing but a reminiscence of this tradition. Now, moving on from this delightful contextual note, let's go back to the wonderful history of the Arab diaspora in Mexico. The prolonged conflicts between the Ottoman Empire and pretty much everyone around them caused large forced displacements during the 19th and 20th centuries. That is how many people from the Arab countries found asylum in other nations, among them Mexico. As we know, the challenging situation that exiles and refugees face requires every inch of resilience to overcome this situation. The dignity and strength of the thousands of men and women and whole families that sought protection in Mexico became their source of pride and was widely respected by Mexicans. This is a very rare and happy story because it had a reasonably quick and positive turn. Because in a matter of a few decades, the second generation of Arabs became industrialists bankers, business owners, restaurateurs, and even famous actors and artists. Their culture and history had a deep impact and captured Mexicans' imagination, so much so that even inspired a most unusual superhero. But we get on to that later. Now, it is commonly assumed that it was just Lebanese immigrants who came to Mexico, but we wouldn't be doing any justice to the nearly 100,000 Arab-speaking people that came from Palestine, Turkey, Egypt, Libya, Syria, Iran, and a few other countries. But it is true that the large Lebanese community constitutes more than 40% of the immigrants from the Middle East that came. In the 1960s, the then-president Adolfo López Mateos famously said something along the lines of, if you don't have a Lebanese friend, well, you better get yourself one. 
<laughs> now, this, of course, is banter, but it really exemplifies how generally well accepted this diaspora was. Now, it is important also to mention that of the total of immigrants that came from the Arab nations, most of them were Christian, specifically Catholics, and only a smaller portion of them were Muslim. To this day, we have 18 mosques located in different cities across Mexico, along with a handful of Muslim cultural centers, which are really outnumbered by the many Lebanese community centers that we have. Now, between 1890 and 1970, a total of 391 Lebanese refugees came to my hometown, the city of Puebla. And from there, the numbers grew exponentially. But why Puebla? Well, this city was, at some point in history, the poster child of our own industrial revolution, the textile hub of the nation, and was envisioned to become the Manchester of the Americas by industrialist Esteban de Antuñano. Prosperous, safe and thriving, this was an ideal place to easily find an entry-level job. Most Arab immigrants had to resource to very basic commercial activities like door-to-door haberdashery selling, working at factories and joining as staffers at local grocery shops. But their uncanny ability to make businesses, save money and invest quickly set them back on their feet. And in a matter of years, they started running their own little businesses, including food. Now, I don't think I have to build up much momentum to tell you that the world-famous Arab and Pastor Tacos are one of Mexico's most famous exports. But allow me to dwell in the fact that they are indeed a poblano fusion. Juicy and heavily marinated meats, slow-cooked, were by far the best and most successful gastronomic import that could have ever happened in the history of food exchange. <laughs> I'm always exaggerating. But this is precisely where things get interesting. You see, humans have been roasting meat since, well, they came across fire and found a way to keep it lit. But the fine art of creating devices and building spaces for the sole purpose of roasting meat, that is a much more recent history. In the Middle East, grilling and roasting was by far the most effective way to cook meat on the go. Nomadic tribes, shepherds and large merchant caravans had used it for millennia. But the vertical roasting pit with stacked slices of lamb or mutton, gently cooked and carved to prepare individual portions, actually appeared only in the 19th century at the heart of the Ottoman Empire, which was Turkey. The name of the dish prepared with this meat is Dona Kebab, which consists of carved meat in a soft pita bread, seasoned with sauces, onion, and depending on the region, with coriander and other leafy vegetables, and lapne, which is a type of thick and sour yogurt. What Arabs did next in Puebla is the stuff of foodie dreams. First, some changes had to be made in order to navigate from table to table in the most gracious and delicious way. So it turns out that from colonial times, pork had become the most popular meat in this region because pork farming, well, it's fairly simple and pork meat 
was always abundant and cheap. So, Arab cooks realized that the smart move to make was to give doner kebab a Mexican fixer upper and substituted their traditional mutton for pork. And of course, chiles had to find their way into them. And what better than smoky chipotles seasoned with spices and vinegar to give the meat a perfect balance with a sauce. But they didn't compromise when it came to the flatbread used to serve the meat, as, well, it pretty much gives this dish personality and brings all the flavors together. And it is also what carries the Arab heritage in it. So this soft pita was simply rebranded as pan arabe, or, or Arab bread. The pork meat was marinated pretty much in the same way as mutton, with slightly different spices that infuse the meat as it cooks. A shawarma roasting pit is known in Mexico as trompo, and at an average popular taqueria, a trompo can hold between 80 and 200 kilos of meat, which is gently cooked with roasting wood, not gas. The Arab poblano way of serving this form of doner kebab is simply by carving the outer layers of the meat and placing them in a hot piece of Arab bread and roll it. On the side, a thick and dark chipotle sauce and wedges of lime are the only companions for this majestic dish, which is simply called taco arabe or Arab taco. But this culinary epiphany didn't end here, because what came after was an even more ingenious innovation that incorporated more native ingredients, and to complete the metamorphosis, it was served in a corn tortilla. And if you haven't guessed already, I am referring to tacos al pastor, which literally translates as shepherd's style taco, made with thinner and less fatty slices of pork marinated in a thick coat of achiote or anato paste mixed with the juice of sour oranges, chiles and plenty of spices. This incredibly flavorful crimson marinade gives these tacos their distinctive flavor, which is only enhanced by the roasting method that uses gas to produce high flames that cook and caramelizes the meat in minutes and sometimes in seconds. Wafer-thin slices are carved and served straight on a hot corn tortilla, and the finishing touches are the wonderful toppings, which consist of freshly chopped pineapple, chopped onion, and coriander, together with drops of lime and a sharp salsa. Many taquerias that are not based in Puebla actually put a piece of pineapple on top of the shawarma or trompo, and from there they carve it and serve some portions on the taco. As you can imagine, that divides opinions. And like many others, I am of the school that says that pineapple should be kept fresh and away from the heat, because it is precisely that contrast in the sweetness, sharpness and temperature that create layers of textures and flavors in this little but mighty taco. I very often get to meet chefs from around the world that come on foodie pilgrimages to Mexico and book food tours with me to be initiated in the dark arts and secrets of these two traditional tacos. 
And I remember Chef Patrick Toma telling me about a most extraordinary cultural export, and that is the shawarma mexiki. What? Yes, this consists of a chicken version of tacos al pastor that seems to be very popular in certain places in the Arab world. <laughs> and I still think it is an extraordinary culinary odyssey that went absolutely full circle. And last but not least, I know you are familiar with Thor, the heir of Asgard, and Black Panther, heir and king of Wakanda. But do you know about the heir of the throne of Kalimatan? No? Well, the mighty Kaliman was a Mexican superhero who fought crime, Nazis, vampires, aliens and zombies. <laughs> and he used his powers of mind reading, hypnotism and astral projection to accomplish his dangerous missions. This fascinating character leaped from radio dramas to printed comic books. And although it's been out of print for many, many years, Kaliman still remains a cult figure in Mexican pop culture. And many sociologists agree that the fascination that Mexicans had with the Arab world had much to do with the large Arab diaspora's culture, which undoubtedly was key to inspire this character and his thrilling adventures. Caballero con los hombres. Galante con las mujeres. Tierno con los niños. Implacable con los malvados. Así es. El hombre increíble. We will return with the show after this short break. Has the Chipotle is the audible companion of my own independent editorial project, with themed books that contain carefully researched recipes to prepare traditional dishes, presented with equally tantalizing and rich photography, and the cultural history behind these traditions. My catalogue includes Mexican fiestas, Mexican street food, Mexican chocolate, Puebla's great food tour, and my latest Mexican market food. As a digital author, I get to have the enormous privilege of creative freedom, and I use it to produce these books to take you on a journey discovering the amazing history behind the wonderful world of Mexican food. To know more about my ebooks and start the making of your own traditions, go to pasdechipotle.com forward slash publications or click the link that I left on this episode's notes. Go to pasachipotle.com forward slash publications and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you never imagined.
Anyone who has visited Mexico City will tell you about our very own Chinatown, locally known as Barrio Chino, which is located a few meters away from the Alameda Park, where the majestic and iconic Palace of Fine Arts is allocated. The otherwise overseen Chinese presence in Mexico has commonly been assumed to be a very recent phenomenon. After all, the food scene that most big cities in the world have, well, can't be complete without the ubiquitous Chinese buffet, with their glossy marinades, mountains of steaming vegetables, drenched in delicious spicy oils, and noodles thick and thin to satisfy the hungry office grunt, curious tourists, and big and small groups of friends. At the dawn of the 20th century, the rapid modernization of North American cities saw an increase in the demand for cheap labor to build urban infrastructure, such as roads and railways. It is in this context that large groups of Chinese people saw in these attractive overseas contracts an opportunity to leave their country and escape from famine and the increasingly oppressive regime and seek a better fortune in America. Now, things didn't quite go as planned, as the railway companies paid very poorly, forced laborers to live in terrible camps. Many Chinese people moved on to join cotton plantations. But a brutal racist campaign, instigated by their former employers, who refused to fulfill their contracts, was supported by the American government. And this meant that the situation became increasingly intolerant. And, as it is often the sad case, the presence of those who had contributed so much to build that nation were no longer welcomed, as they were forced to choose fleeing over facing deportation. It was then, in the first decade of the 1900s, when they turned to Mexico. At first, it was mainly at border towns where they stayed, but soon they mobilized south as far as Mexico City and even the peninsula of Yucatan. I really take pride in the efforts I make to research and prepare each episode and share untold stories. And this one brings shame and horror, but also needs to be acknowledged. So here we go. The sudden and increasing presence of Chinese immigrants aroused the suspicion of many Mexicans who turned to the most horrendous response of xenophobia. Just as a lot of people were perfectly fine with their presence, there were many others who campaigned and sought to cast suspicion and fear about the Chinese presence and fabricated a sense of threat around it. This led to even more horrible acts of segregation, public humiliation and all sorts of senseless prohibitions like forbidding Chinese people from selling food, banning Chinese-Mexican marriages, imposing curfews, denying them access to public buildings like libraries, restaurants and museums, and many other equally stupid things, including the construction of ghetto-like neighborhoods for them and denying them any access to public health services. It wasn't until the tenure of President Lázaro Cárdenas when, in 1934, he ordered the end of the unlawful segregation of Chinese immigrants, whose numbers had plummeted from 15,976 in 1911 to only 6,661 people. 
Between the second half of the 1930s and the 1960s, this community began a long and much-deserved process of healing, while, I want to believe, Mexicans also walked away from the ignorant and shameful attitudes that led to the suffering of thousands. This new scenario opened opportunities for the extended families of these Mexican Chinese people to come to Mexico, and most of them arrived via the port of Veracruz. Many families remained together and settled in different cities dotted in the southeast. Some, however, headed to the capital, where a small but strong community established in what is known today as the Barrio Chino. The Chinese people that had been living in California, Arizona, Nevada and other borderline states observed that trains had a significant impact in the way people ate and traveled. Long commuting journeys left no room for lengthy meals and people were in desperate need for a quick bite and ready-made drinks. So that was their eureka moment that prompted them to open little stalls offering steamed and baked buns and hot coffee. Their popularity saw a huge growth of such small businesses across large cities in Mexico, where they famously stayed open for most of the day. This simple but genius idea was the seed for other businesses that the upcoming generation of Chinese Mexicans continued. And at some point, they decided to start opening and running their own cafes, which were soon known as Cafés de Chinos. And from there, the natural evolution were restaurants and the ever-so-popular Chinese buffets, with their unique and evocative decor featuring Chinese lampshades, ornaments, and little figurines that we now associate with a domestic Chinese environment. On their menus, side by side, you can see many traditional Cantonese dishes, since mm, the vast majority of immigrants came from this region, with their steamy egg, rice and wheat noodles, along with options like enchiladas, tortas, Mexican beers and green tea. Now, an update to the current state of Chinese cafes and buffets is that in these past months, they have been profoundly affected by the lockdown and restrictions due to the health crisis. But perhaps this is the inevitable result of a slow decline. Their once busy and popular food joints didn't have much competition in the busy streets of Mexico many decades ago. But with the arrival of international fast food franchises and the changes in tasters meant that they suddenly faced a very gloomy reality. Added to this, most of these businesses are family-run, and the fact that the younger generations don't seem that much interested in maintaining these restaurants, as it is often the case, well, this might jeopardize even more their already uncertain future. Ultimately, it is down to their decision whether they want to carry on this tradition or change. It will be a sad loss to see them disappear. But all the same, I can appreciate that every generation sacrifices to better the chances for the next one. And sometimes the end of one activity gives way to other opportunities. But if you have the chance to visit any of their cafes, make sure to have a few of their loved staples of milky coffee, steamed and baked pastries called biscuits. And don't miss the chance to visit the remaining relics that are the all-you-can-eat Chinese buffets. 
I always marveled when I see how the barrio chino goes from a quiet and empty place in the morning and slowly wakes up as the day grows increasingly dark. Everything comes back to life as red round lamps cheerfully light up the streets with their distinctive red glow. As you can see, these three cases tell very different stories. Stories of struggle, fear, love and hope. And as you can imagine, there are dozens of similar micro-stories of Mexican communities that are descendants of immigrants, like the Amish or German Mennonites, the Swiss colony in the mountains of Chiapas, the town of Chipilo that became the home of farmers from northern Italy, refugee children of the Spanish Civil War, asylum seekers that fled the states of terror from Nicaragua, Chile, Argentina and El Salvador. We've only scratched the surface of this fascinating cultural Pandora box. The fact that their foods have been so widely embraced to the point of becoming ours, it is a testimony of our ever-changing culinary identity and the ways in which we can negotiate cultural exchange through the universal language of food. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocío Carvajal. If you want to read more about some of the facts that are mentioned on this episode, including, of course, the recipe to prepare traditional Mexican pastas and my list of amazing books to continue exploring these stories, please go to my website, pasichipotle.com. You can reach out to me via Instagram or Twitter. The links are on the notes of this episode, of course. Well, that's it for today, my friends. Until the next time.